Amen. Okay, good. So we're on our second week talking about uh, the, the book of Song of Solomon. And you should have two outlines in your hands. If you didn't get two outlines, go ahead and just raise your hand. There's a few just here in the front. Still need one or two of them. Um, what we've got here is I've given you a little bit of extra reading in a, uh, a little bit broader outline that is models of interpretation. It gives you more background uh, of the Song of Solomon. It talks about how to approach the book, the different views about the book um, historically. It talks about the, the common approaches to the, the allegory, which we're going to talk about a little bit. And then it talks about the, the main characters. And it gives you a decent understanding of, of how to approach this book uh, in your study. This week, I had some conversation with some folks who they've never really, you know, taken any time and looked at the Song of Solomon, just, you know, maybe read it here or there, not, but haven't really spent much time studying it. And they said, you know, I, I'm, I'm really wanting to get, engage with this, but I don't, I don't quite get it yet. And I said, that's okay, that's okay. There's a few symbols that once you get your heart around it, once you get your mind around it, uh, it becomes, it starts to become really clear. And so um, what I thought I would do today is give a little bit more of an overview. Last week we talked about why should we study it. This week we're going to talk about sort of the, the central theme and the key concepts of the book. And then next week we'll start getting into the actual uh, text and working through the different you know, features of the story, the, the key things. Now we're not going to be able to go obviously phrase by phrase because it's so full of symbolic language that you literally have to spend hours unpacking that. And we do that in our classes here. We spent, um, you know, 24 hours, uh, you know, two hours a week in class over 12 weeks unpacking the whole book. Um, And so that's what we'd ordinarily do if we were teaching it in a class. We're not going to do that here on Sunday morning or on our Sunday services uh, you know, just for the sake of time, but we're going to give the, the key ideas, the key concepts and work through quite a bit of the text so that we as a community can, can grasp this critical book. It's a really, really essential, essential study. And so um, what I want to do is just sort of lay out in an overview fashion key themes, key concepts, and then next week we will work through, we'll begin to work through chapter one. Um, so go ahead and take out the, the outline that says overview of the song. That's the one we're going to be working from today. And I want to put these things in your hands so that you can actually take them away and read them and study them. And um, I'm, I'm encouraging you, strongly encouraging you to do that. This little six-page models of interpretation, it'll take you like 15 minutes to read. Just, just read it in your, in your own study time. Just, just go over it, read it, get your mind around it. It will help you as you're trying to apprehend what's going on. In the Song of Solomon. Okay. Now let's take a look at this outline. Understanding Song of Songs as an allegory. So it's important we get that we're approaching our study as an allegory. We're not looking at this book as a, a, um, a literal story. We're looking at it as an allegory. Now in this other outline that I've given you to read, you'll find that there are... Uh, Literal interpretations about this being a story of natural love between a, a man and a woman. And, and 
there's a, a, whole, a whole zone of interpretation along that line. And we bless that. We're happy for that. We encourage that. You can look at it in a literal way, and it can be a blessing as it relates to the virtues of married love and, and things of that nature. And so um, we encourage that. Uh, you know, that, that's one version of interpretation. Um, and it's, been, it's become really popular probably in the last hundred years. Um, our focus is primarily seeing it as an allegory, which would be the key way that it was uh, interpreted, you know, all the way up to about the 1900s by Jewish rabbis and then by the church fathers and those through history have, have primarily looked at this book as an allegory. And so an allegory is a symbolic story. That's, that's the bottom line. It's a story that is, has symbolism in it that points us to a concrete truth. And that's the key, is that you have to know when you're reading it, that though it's symbolic in its language, at least that's going to be our approach to it, is that it points to concrete truths that are already established in the Scripture. And so I really want to uh, emphasize that point. When we're looking at it uh, as an allegory, we're looking for the symbols pointing to the real truths And then what we want to do is engage with those real truths. It's not simply enough to know that, oh, that's a symbol and it means this. You know, he's in in the story, there's Solomon. Well, he's the king. He represents Jesus. It's not enough just to sort of have the mechanic of that down, just sort of have the, well, I know what that one represents. What we've got to do is we've got to take it beyond sort of understanding the symbol to actually engaging with the real truth because that's where it will actually move your heart. And so that's where we want to move this thing to. So as an allegory, it's a symbolic story that doesn't necessarily have uh, uh, historic facts as its basis. You know, you see that a lot of times when you watch a movie. It might say, based on a true story. It could or it couldn't be. It doesn't have to be. Um, it, it's a, uh, it speaks in symbolic language. To illustrate concrete truths, the Chronicles of Narnia, that's a perfect example, speaks of the battle between good and evil. And so, uh, you know, when you're, when you're reading the Song of Solomon, think of it in that way. We've got different, um, uh, different characters who represent different uh, real people. Just like in the Chronicles, you have Aslan who represents Jesus. Well, we have the same thing going on in the Song of Songs. Now, there in B, I mentioned that, that the allegorical interpretation of the song is the most common for the first 1,900 years of church history, and it was the most common with Jewish rabbis uh, prior to that. C, the Bible affirms allegorical illustrations. And I give three examples there in C that you can go and study on your own where they actually, the the New Testament writer will actually use uh, allegory to explain a concrete truth. And so some people would just get a little bit thrown off over, hey, you're teaching it from an allegorical standpoint. Well, the Bible affirms allegory. And so that's my point. I want to encourage uh, that allegory is something that's within the bounds of biblical, biblical interpretation as long as, as long as it's pointing to a, an already established truth. And so one of the biggest ones is what Paul says about the church in Israel. He uses Sarah and Hagar as an example there in Galatians. And so allegory is well in bounds when it, when it comes to teaching the scripture. 
Jesus, of course, he used parables. Well, what are parables? Allegories that always spoke of concrete truths. Okay, D, again, emphasizing this point. And for some of you, this is just, you know, review because you've already approached the Song of Solomon. You've already done study in it. I appreciate that. But then you've also got to recognize that there's people that are hearing this for the very first time, haven't ever approached the Song of Solomon. So they really need to get some of these um, thoughts landed before we actually go into it. But again, just emphasizing allegorical interpretations are helpful as long as we only use them to illustrate a truth that's clearly established throughout the body of Scripture. Now, what happens, like with the Song of Solomon, for instance, is occasionally, you don't hear this very often, but occasionally you'll hear you know, people sensualize their relationship with Jesus. They'll, they'll, they'll talk about Jesus is my boyfriend, or the Lord was just kissing me, and they mean it you know, in, a, in a not a figurative way. And what they've done is they've gone beyond the bounds of the way that uh, we're approaching it. So we don't, we're not teaching this to, to emphasize Jesus physically kissing anybody. All the men said amen. You know, none of the guys are in here hoping like Jesus is going to pucker up and, and lay one on them. Uh, but it can get, if you don't emphasize this point, it can get over into a gray area where you can sensualize the Song of Songs. And that's not what it's about at all. It's not about sensualizing it, but it is sensualizing it. But it is about finding the truth of God's fiery heart of love and passion for his people. And really engaging with that concept and grappling with this truth that God presents himself as a husband. He presents himself as a bridegroom for a reason. He gives us the picture of human marriage. He gives us the picture of a husband who is who's radically in love with his wife. Why? Why does he give us that earthly picture? Why does he give us the whole institution of marriage? To declare of himself. The whole thing was always to declare of himself. And then right there in the scripture, he gives us this amazing love story to speak to us of his nature. So, again, emphasizing the allegory points to truth that's already established about the body of scripture. Now, in E, I just take that a little further and explain about metaphor similar, simile. I explain, explain about how we are to approach Scripture. And this is just a good reminder, but we always approach Scripture with its literal uh, implications first in mind, and then we look for the, the, the metaphor. And so we always take it first literally, unless there's an obvious metaphor or a simile used in the text. Again, you can look at that later on your own. Okay, so I just wanted to hammer that point about allegory just so we know how we're coming at the story. All right, Roman numeral two. Let's talk about the theme. The theme of Song of Solomon is established right there at the very beginning, right there in verse four. And this is the theme that plays out through the rest of the book. And this theme, to me, is uh, it's not just central to the book of Song of Solomon, This is the theme that I believe is central to our walk with the Lord. And so uh, when we're approaching uh, uh, the way that we're interpreting the allegories, we're taking it most specifically as the way that we individually relate to Jesus. And so when we're reading the story between uh, the bridegroom and the maiden, the bridegroom and the bride in Song of Songs, think about it in the way that you relate to Jesus and your personal journey with the Lord. That's how we're going after it. And so when we see at the beginning of the book, 
this twofold theme that's established, and this, I believe, mirrors exactly what Jesus laid out as the theme of Christianity and how we are to operate with the Lord. So the language in Song of Solomon is this, draw me away and let us run together. Draw me away and let us run together. And this is how it, it breaks down. Draw me away is a, uh, a request for intimacy with God at the highest level. It's the desire that gets birthed in a human heart by the light of revelation where we say we want God. We want God to, to draw us into who he is, to draw us into his emotions, that we would know him, how he thinks, how he feels, that we would have a, a, a deep heart of engagement with God. It's the critical first step of every believer that we would, we would approach the Lord and say, who are you, how do you think, how do you feel, and how do you think and feel about me? And coming under that, that fountain of revelation of the Lord's uh, thoughts, feelings, and affections, who he is, his very nature, and then how that applies towards us, it's the critical first step for any believer. Now here's what I've encountered. Over 20 plus years of ministry. Most of the time we get somebody saved, we put them instantly to work. And we don't tend to introduce them to the nature and the knowledge of God. And we don't tend to introduce them to who he is as the God of burning love and passion and desire. We don't tend to let them experience the way he thinks and feels and, and specifically toward them. Uh, we don't tend to put those revelations firstly in front of them. What we tend to do is put the Great Commission in front of them. Now listen, I will say this. I have found in 20 plus years of ministry, some of the best evangelists are the brand new Christians. Because they've got the most relationship with the unsaved. They've got all the connections. You know, somebody that's been in the church for 20 years, unless they've been super intentional, they don't have a lot of friends that go to the bar. In general. Somebody's like, well, I do. Well, <laughs> okay, we'll count you as that group. But in general, the guy that's been around for a while, most of his friends are churchy kind of friends. Most of them. The new guy, he gets saved. He's got a bunch of connections at work you know, whoever, family, that don't know the Lord. And so oftentimes we say, okay, go get them all saved. Go get them all saved. God wants you to go get them all saved. And I'm all for new believers sharing their faith. So don't hear me the wrong way. I'm all for new believers sharing their faith. But what I really am jealous for is not just them sharing their faith, but for them to come in contact with the heart of the one who they, said, who they have said yes to and then sharing their faith from that place, rather than from some compelled, they're all going to hell unless you tell them place. Make sense? And so what we have here is this critical first step 
for believers, it's being drawn away into the knowledge and the nature of God, drawn away into the, the burning heart of God for them, knowing what he is like and the way he feels toward them. That's what she's talking about. Draw me away. I want to experience the passion of your heart. I want to know the way you think and feel. I want to know your emotions towards me, your approach toward me. What do you think about me? And at the end of the day, beloved, that is the critical thing that all of us want to know. What do you think about me, God? How do you feel about me? What's your heart towards me? And when you deal with that question at the heart level, what do you think about me? When you deal with the truth of the scripture about God's feelings towards you, and you actually encounter that truth about his, his desire for you, his passion for you, his burning jealousy for you, his tenderness and his gentleness towards you, how he thinks of you as beautiful, when you come into contact with that, it has a, an, a, uh, the ability, the, the power to completely transform you on the inside. Because still, most believers, they live their entire life wondering, what do you think about me, God? I've met believers that have been 40, 50 years in the Lord, done many, many great things with God, served in ministry, all sorts of stuff. And they're, they're grappling over God's attitude toward them. They're, they're working over, you know, they're worked in their heart over, I don't know if he, if he likes me or if, I don't know if he approves of me. I don't know the way he thinks about me and feels about me. And uh, what I find is that most of our brokenness it, in life, it comes from this lack of understanding of who God is, how he thinks and feels, and then specifically how he thinks and feels about us. And so we live broken because we don't know the passion of his heart, his tenderness, his absolute radical desire for relationship with us, and his gentleness towards us in our weakness. We imagine that once we get saved, God says, now be perfect as I'm perfect. We kind of throw those verses in there. And we don't think there's any kind of process of growth. And we imagine, man, if I step out of line, oh, I'm doing bad and probably God thinks badly of me. And we don't connect to this God who knows our frame. He knows we're dust. He's, he's taking us on a journey into maturity, a journey ultimately into love. And we don't connect with the heart of a God who is, I mean, just crazy about us. You just can't lose with him. If you're saying yes, you just can't lose with him. I promise you. And that's what she's going after. She's going, draw me away. Let me know what you're like. Let me know what's in your heart. Let me know the way you think about things. Let me know the way you feel about things. And, and principally, how do you feel about me? I have to know that. And what we find is Song of Solomon, the first four chapters, is primarily answering this question of draw me away. It's primarily answering the question, who are you, what are you like, and how do you feel about me? Draw me away. And then what we have is the second point. And this is the journey in Christianity. It's draw me away and let us run together. 
Let's do it together, Lord. Let's do ministry together. Let's do all sorts of stuff together. Let's partner together. And here, beloved, we find, in my opinion, the crux of the matter as it relates to Christianity. The crux of the matter as it relates to God's relationship towards people. What's this thing about? This thing is about this. God wants intimate relationship with you. He wants you to know his heart. He wants you to feel his emotions. He wants you to experience life from that well of truth that just fills your soul with the truth that God is... He's crazy about you. He's passionate for you. He wants that to happen to you unto you and God partnering together. Partnership. This is one of the things that um, if you don't have this in place, it kind of makes it odd. It makes your relationship with God kind of odd or skewed. If you don't recognize that he's looking for partnership, If you think he's looking for servants and slaves, your image of God is twisted in a way that was never his intention. He actually is looking for partnership, people to engage with him in his story. That's one of the most moving thoughts to me. He didn't save me and deliver me from sins to make me a slave. He saved me to bring me into partnership. And there is a real running together with God. Now that thought, like just let the, let the roof come off for a minute. You get to run with God. As your portion in this age and the ages to come. You get to run with God. To do cool stuff with Him. Come on. Not as His puppy on a string. As His partner. An equally yoked partner with Him. That's why He said, I am your husband. I, and, I, and I look at believers often and I think about how they um, approach, you know, justice issues. Well, I see it in intercessors a lot in justice issues. You know, they get stirred up over a justice issue. Man, we've just got to see this thing stopped. And, oh, God, break in, God, break in, stop. You know, let's say abortion. Stop abortion, stop abortion. And I'm all for it. Let's stop abortion. Let's see abortion stopped. I hate the thought of thousands of babies dying in the womb every day. I can't hate it. But I see intercessors there going, God, stop, God. And then they get to this place where they imagine they're more concerned about the babies dying than God is. And they're missing the point. The point was never about you learning how to intercede so you could get God in a chicken wing and kind of force him into answering your burden. The point was coming into contact with him, finding out what he's like, finding out the way he feels toward you. And from that well, saying, what do you want to do? And he goes, I want to end abortion. And you go, you, you do? He goes, yeah. Here, cry out with the very passion of my heart for it. Let's see it broken together. And all of a sudden now, ministry becomes something you're doing together with God. Where are you called to be? Are you called to be in the marketplace? Then you're doing it with him. Because guess what? He's got a vision for that place. Are you called to be in the home? Then you're doing it with him. Because why? He's got a vision for your family. He's got a desire. Are you called into ministry somewhere? Great. 
Do it with him. I, I guarantee you, he's already thought about those people in that place and has a greater desire for them than you've ever dreamt of. It's a running together. To me, those two, those two uh, paradigms, they set the basis for how we're to live our life. Our life flows in and out of those things continuously. And what we find the bride is this. She goes from draw me away to running together in equal portion continuously as she goes into maturity. Amen. And this is the theme of the Song of Solomon. This is the theme of our lives. Draw me away. And what do you want to do today? That's it. Draw me away, and what do you want to do today? That's it, gang. And I, and I, I um, it's, it's really that simple. I, I'm pained over how, how complex we sort of made it. Take my heart, tell me what you're like, tell me what you feel about me, and what's on your mind? What are you into? Where do you want me to fit in the story? He goes, I've been thinking about this for a long time. I'm so excited. This is going to be awesome. We get to do stuff together. We get to do stuff together. Yeah. I mean, that is the coolest idea to me. Not, you know, some people, their approach to, um, you know, sort of the will of the Lord. It's, I'm trying to figure out what God wants me to do. I just don't want to step out of God's will. You know what I mean? I just, I could really just blow it right now. I could just step out of his will and just do something he doesn't want me to do. I go, simmer down. He's been thinking about this from forever. He's been thinking about good works prepared beforehand that you get to walk in them with him from forever. He knows exactly what he wants to do with you, what he wants you to do with him. He knows exactly what part you get to play in the story. Get drawn away and run with him. Allow him to direct you right into what he's thinking. It really can be that simple and I think so many times we get paralyzed over, i got to figure out God. And the reason why we feel so like tight-fisted and white-knuckled about, oh, what's the will of God? It's because we don't know what he's like. We don't know his nature. We haven't got the draw, drawn away part down yet. Am I making sense at all? So there it is. The bride is on a two-fold journey into relationship with Jesus. To be drawn away into deep intimacy with him and to run together with him in partnership. It's about partnership. Always remember it's about partnership. The, the next age starts with you being joined forever in bridal partnership with him. Currently, you're betrothed. Betrothed ultimately equals this. It's engagement plus plus. If, if in, in, in the ancient Jewish culture, if somebody canceled their betrothal, it was similar to a divorce. It would take up to a year to get out of the betrothal, not just the, not the wedding, out of the betrothal. You are betrothed right now, and you will be married eternally. This thing's about partnership, gang. This is what he's going for. Intimate disclosure of himself. And that's, man, that's right there where I just, that stops me in my tracks because I go, okay, you want to, you want to show me infinity in love. You want to show me infinity in power and in wisdom and in beauty. He wants to disclose himself to his bride. That's us. Draw me away and show me what you're like. He goes, oh, I'm so glad you asked. That's what I want to do. And I go, oh, God, I've got to know that piece. I've got to know who you are so I can live alive 
And, and, and living alive is, what do we get to do together from that place of disclosure of who you are? So there it is. Deep intimacy with him. Two, to run together with him in partnership and ministry. Now, this is the theme that Jesus expresses in the first and second commandment. Go ahead and flip on over. This is the theme that he expresses. He's answering the question, what's the first and greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Or there, I'm quoting the Matthew 22. It's love with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And then the 38, verse 38, this is the first and great commandment. And the second is like, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There it is. Partnership. Intimacy and love and expressing the love of God to others. That's partnership. How is the second commandment partnership? Because you can't express the love of God to others without God doing it with you. As simple as that. Get drawn away in love and then run together with him in partnership and ministry. The coolest thing is this, is our partnership is not just in this age. Our partnership with God is eternally. In Hosea, when he's speaking to the nation of Israel, he goes, I will betroth you to me forever. Because forever will be joined. Because this will not stop. See, we too often think about the moment or the, you know, the, the near uh, manifestation of what God's doing in our lives. And we don't recognize there's eternal purposes that go far beyond just this age. There is a forever reality of our relationship with God. An eternity reality of our relationship with God. That started when you got born again. You have an eternal identity in Jesus right now as his bride. That's right now. It's who you will be forever. You're a priest forever. You're a son of God forever. These eternal identities that we have, they started when you got saved. We can enter into the revelation and the practice of them now. Amen. If your eternity already started, we should connect to that truth. And then it should dictate how we live day in and day out. Because our eternal identity with God is going to be the one that, you know, imposes upon how we live in the short right here, right now. The short of this age. All right. Overview. Roman numeral three in the outline, page two. There's two main sections to the Song of Solomon. Chapters 1 through 4, chapters 5 through 8. The first four chapters, as I said, they focus on the bride's inheritance in Jesus the bridegroom. This is where she begins to experientially believe and understand how Jesus feels about her and how he views her. Beloved, this is the first course of attention for every believer understanding, beginning to understand how Jesus feels and thinks about you. That's, that's the first course of attention for every believer. When we begin running to do things for him without a concept, I mean, not just even a concept, without, even, without an experiential understanding, beginning spiritual understanding, we will find ourselves burnt out so quickly. I shared last week my testimony about how in ministry I would do all these things for God and just cave and just do all these things for God and just divot, hit these valleys. 
And I realized it was because I hadn't taken the necessary time to come into contact with the truth of the way he thought and felt about me. I got saved because I didn't want to go to hell. And I knew that Jesus had died for, for my sin. He loved me enough to do that. And then I figured I had to live my life proving to Jesus how much I really loved him by my works. Does that make sense? How many have ever lived that? Don't have to answer, don't have to lift your hand, but I mean, have you ever lived that way? So many believers live. I've got to prove to Jesus how much I love him by, by showing him through my works. And what I came to grips with was the fact that that was not sustaining me. In fact, the truth of his love for me is the thing that causes my heart to love him. We love him because he first loved us. There had to be a revelation to me of his love for me to be able to express love. When that thing hit me, I'd been in ministry like 10 years. Whoop. That's definitely getting the cart before the horse. And so when I began to comprehend this, God, this God's affections for me, his, his passions for me, his delight in me, even in immaturity, even in my lack of perfection, even when I made bad decisions that God likes me, he loves me, even in that place, something completely shifted on the inside. It changed the trajectory of everything that I was doing in ministry. No longer am I trying to work to get him to like me in ministry. Ministry is a result of the fact that he does like me. It comes naturally out of this place. And he goes, you are so cute. I like you so much. You're so fun. I'm fun. Yeah, you're fun. Listen, I remember one time, listen to this story. I'm sitting there. I've told this story before, but it's just perfect right now. I'm sitting there in this counseling appointment, and I'm trying to counsel this person. It's going badly. And I'm trying to cheer them up. And I told, it, I told them a joke or two. And it's just not going well in the council. I'm trying to be like funny a little bit, just to light, lighten it up. It didn't go well. And I just, I just thought, oh man, I should have done that. I'm just, a, I'm such a bad counselor and blah, loser. Uh, it's a horrible, horrible. And I just, I left the person worse than they were before. I'm like, geez, it'd have been nice to have a little counseling anointing today, Jesus. And I'm feeling bad about it. I go sit back at, at my desk, my table. And in the prayer room, and I, uh, I've got a few emails, and right there I got one, and uh, it says, the Lord's speaking to me about you right now. I go, well, I need that one. Let's see that. And uh, I look at the timestamp, and it's like 30 minutes earlier when I was in the counseling meeting. I'm like, oh, this is interesting. And here's the email. It reads this way. The Lord's speaking to me about you right now. Your face is in front of me as I'm praying, and the Lord wants you to know one thing right now. He thinks your jokes are funny. This cannot be saying that. He thinks your jokes are funny. He likes your sense of humor. And when no one else is laughing, he thinks it's awesome. That's what it said. I was like, this is nuts. It was a good joke. So often we view ourselves through our own lens of our own abilities. And God goes, even in your weaknesses, I just think you're the coolest thing ever. You're, you know, and he doesn't say you're cute, but I, I feel like he's saying you're just cute to me, man. You're just cool. I just like you. I like your jokes. And I've, I've man, I've leaned back on that for years. I go, man, I say goofy things all the time, and God's up there going, that dude's so funny. <laughs> nobody's laughing. I'd be in front of a crowd, you know, hundreds of people. Nobody's laughing. God's going, bah, ha, 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 ha. 
It makes me feel so good. Because that's his approach to us, that even in our weakness, even in our frailty, even in our just broken down weakness, he's tender. And he likes us. It's just, it's, it's such a powerful impact on the heart. So that's, that's chapter one through four. She's engaging with his emotions. She's engaging with the love of God. It's moving her heart. It's transforming her. She's coming to believe that in her weakness, he finds her attractive. He loves her. Even in her weakness, in her darkness, he, his emotions towards her are rich and, and he desires her. And that's how God feels about us in our weakness. And he even says, you're beautiful to me in your immaturity. What a critical thought. This is such a critical thought. When God sees you, yes, he knows how you are right now, but he equally knows how you'll be in 20 years. He looks at you right now and he sees who you're going to be and he continually speaks to you about the budding virtues of righteousness in you. He's continually seeing you through who you will become. Not just the brokenness of what you're experiencing today. Man, when that hit me, I went, oh my gosh. You're seeing me through the lens of mature love. Through the guy that I dream I'll be when I'm 70 or 80. You're seeing me that way today. He goes, I'm calling all those virtues forth in you. I can't lose with him. You can't lose with him. He's seeing the mature version of you. He sees you as you are, yes, but he's calling forth those budding virtues of of beauty and righteousness. He's calling those forth all the time. He's calling you into maturity and love because he knows who you're going to be. And that's instructed my heart in a great way as as it relates to me interacting with people. You know, every one of us is weak. Every one of us does bonehead stuff. Every one of us. And rather than going, man, that person, they're just, they're just so, they just, they don't get it. They're just, you know, so mature. The Lord just, that's not how I think about you. He goes, I see who you're going to be. I see where you're going. And I want you to think that way about them too. I want you to see who they'll be in mature love. See the budding virtues of righteousness coming forth. And man, it's caused me to, to deal differently with his bride. I think a lot of times ministers, they don't get that Jesus is going to marry the church. They kind of have an attitude toward the church. I'm like, hey, bro, that's someone else's wife. In fact, that's Jesus' wife you're talking about. You need to be very careful. You need to see her the way he sees her. And call out of her the, the budding virtues of righteousness rather than being down on her and imagining she's just some, you know, you know, whatever, some cast off. See her the way Jesus sees her. So there it is, first four chapters. It's, it's her engaging with his emotions, experiencing his love, finding that he is, I mean, radically in love. The, the language is, he's, he's ravished. His heart is ravished for her. And to me, that's the pinnacle of the book, chapter 4, 9. It says, you have ravished my heart. You have ravished my heart. 
If you, if you think anything differently about God's desire and love for you, you need to marinate yourself in Song of Solomon 4.9. You've ravished me. See, in chapter 4.9, she's still immature. Let me just lay it out for you. Chapter 2, she says, go away. I'm not ready to go with you yet. I'm not ready to run away, uh, uh, to, to run together with you. Three, she experienced what it's like when he goes away and she goes, oh, it was way better for you to be with me. I'd rather be with you on the mountains where it's scary doing all this you know, stuff with you than alone in the, in the place of comfort. She goes, I can't do that. And she, when she finds him in chapter three, she goes, I'll never let him go again. She's not done anything else. And in chapter four, she's not proven how much she's really abandoned. She's not, she's not done any ministry yet. But in chapter four, he shows up and he says, you've ravished me. Just because of the lean of her heart. Not because of anything she did done. Just because the yes on the inside, you've ravished me. Man, that is a, that is a pinnacle truth. That God is ravished. That's the language he uses to describe his heart of love for you. In your weakness, even in immaturity, he goes, I am ravished over you. I go, you mean I can't make it better? He goes, no, I love you at the highest, most intense, most fiery level there is. I'm ravished over you. I go, "Uh, surely I can work to make that. He goes, no. That little yes on the inside. He goes, I see your yes. It's ravished my heart. It's the critical truth. It's the pinnacle of the story. First four chapters, she's doing the draw me away. She's finding out about his emotions, how he feels. The, the, the second four chapters, it's what it looks like when you're running together with him. And she's growing into spiritual maturity, experiencing intimacy with him, And she's doing all sorts of exploits in God. She's experiencing this, this, I mean, this wonder of running together. There's wonder for every believer in the running together. There's dreams he has for each of us to run together with him. That intimate place of partnership. And so what the first part is, is she's going, I have an inheritance, and my inheritance is Jesus. Jesus is my inheritance. Oh, my goodness. And it's, it's a little bit about what can she get from Jesus. It's kind of where she's at. What do I get from him? Oh, his love. Oh, he says I'm beautiful. Oh, it moves me. But that's not it. That's not the whole deal. The whole deal is this. We have an inheritance in him, and guess what? His inheritance is us. And that's the second part of the book. The Father has promised Jesus an inheritance, and it's you and me. I don't know if you've ever felt this way. I'm like, God, you know, Father, couldn't you have given Jesus something better? Like, like I'm the inheritance? Like, oh, give him a universe or something cool. I mean, broken down, weak me. He goes, a universe doesn't hold a candle to you. You're what he wanted. Can you comprehend that? The desire of the Son of God is that his Father would give him something. And that gift, the very desire that, he, that he's asking for is you. 
You know, we read it a little bit impersonally, asking me to give the nations. We go, oh, he, see, he wants, he wants Africa, and he wants South America. Well, the only reason he wants Africa and South America and Asia and all the, the continents, the only reason he wants them is because there's people there. He's not interested in the ball of mud. He's interested in the people on the ball of mud. In other words, he's not interested in geography, per se, in, in owning the planet. He's interested in owning the hearts. He's interested in intimacy with all the hearts, with every individual. You're the inheritance. That's what chapter 5 through 8 is about. Knowing that he has an inheritance in us. And beloved, that truth is huge. That's a huge truth. I go, how is that possible that I'm the gift you've desired from the Father? He goes, you have no idea how I think and feel about you. And I go back to the first part. I have an inheritance in you. He goes, that's right. And I have an inheritance in you. And what happens is this. It's interesting in the song. We'll point it out in future weeks. But she starts off saying, uh, my beloved is mine and I am his. In other words, she's got the, he's my inheritance and I'm his first. And then by the end in her maturity, she says, I am my beloved's and he is mine. And she's put the truth of her being his inheritance first. One through four, our inheritance in him. Five through eight, his inheritance in us. And then last, last part right here, Roman numeral four. I'll just give a second on each of these. These are central concepts of the song. There's probably 25 central concepts. Here I'm giving just a handful. I've touched them all as we've just gone over this outline. But I want to set the table for us as, as we begin to move through the language. I know the language can throw you off a little bit. But once we get through a little bit of the metaphor, a little bit of the symbolism, man, you'll see these truths coming through so brightly. And we'll work through the language in the, day, in the weeks ahead. But let me give you these concepts. A, huge, God's gentleness toward us in our immaturity. That's a critical thought. God is gentle he is desirous of us. He, he loves us in our weakness and our immaturity. He loves us before we're the finished product. That's one that, man, most believers, they just don't get it. They think that God loves us as the finished product. And I go, no, no, no. He loves you in your frailty. But how could it be? I'm such a, you know, this and that. I got so many issues. I got gray areas. He loves you in your weakness. And he's always calling forth the budding virtues of righteousness in you. Always calling them forth. He's gentle towards you in your immaturity. Get that point. He's gentle towards you in your immaturity. It's expressed in the song where she says, I am dark, but he calls me lovely. I am dark. I've got issues. I've got weaknesses. I make bad decisions sometimes. I'm burned out. In her case, she's burned out. But he says, I'm beautiful. He's tender towards you in your weakness, in your immaturity. B, God's desire for partnership with his bride. You just cannot, I just cannot emphasize this a month, uh, enough. He continually answers her heart cry. So you have a heart cry to do stuff with God. That's in your heart. He continually answers it. He says, come on, come with me to the mountains. 
And the mountains represent like spiritual conquest, like, like trampling on like principalities and powers, like overcoming demonic strongholds together. Like God goes, I am going to take you to the absolute brink. We're going to take down spiritual strongholds. Come on, let's do this together. Let's do real spiritual warfare. She goes, what? Her first approach was, I kind of liked it under the shade tree. We were just kind of like just experiencing love. It was so good. He goes, yeah, we're going to the mountains too. She goes, I'm not really a mountain girl. I don't do hiking. I mean, she's, what? And she goes, tell you what, you be like a gazelle on the mountains. You go and leap on mountains and go to the mountain of Bether, which is separation. She goes, I'm, I'm not going. And by chapter three, she goes, what was I thinking? It's way worse without him than it is with him, even if it's on the mountains. And this idea of partnership, he wants us with him. He wants us doing stuff together. How would that be if in your marital relationship, you know, husband and wife are expressing love. Well, I love you. Oh, I love you too. I love you too. I love you too. And then they go, you know, somebody says, so do you guys ever do anything together? No. No, we don't ever do anything together. Well, do y'all love each other? Oh, we love each other. We tell each other through the door. What? Yeah, yeah, he stands outside and tells me how much he loves me. And I say from the inside, yeah, I love you too. And that's it. What would that, I mean, would that be, that's just so weird. As I'm saying it, it sounds awkward. Right? There is an obvious point of partnership. And then take it to the next level where, where most believers put it. What if doing things together equaled the husband giving orders and the wife just following them? All the women went, you know, what? No. Partnership, togetherness, together. We're together. This is what it is with us and God. He desires partnership. Get that peace. All right, see his ravished heart. The critical truth of the way God thinks and feels about us. He's overwhelmed with love for us, which I emphasized. D, his tenderness and discipline and instruction. He's so kind to us in our weakness, calling us out of darkness and gray areas in tenderness and gentleness toward us. He's not smashing us. So many people think the discipline of God is this, this hammer, just this hammer blow. He's so tender, so gentle, calling us out of it. It's his goodness that calls us and draws us to repentance. E, God's beauty as a bridegroom king. If you've never interfaced with the beauty of God, the absolute fascinating beauty of who he is, his, his, uh, the expression of his heart, his emotions, the reality of his glory, this book, almost like none other, expresses the beauty of God that will absolutely fascinate you and allure you to him. He's magnetic in his attraction towards us when we begin to get around the truth of who he is. His beauty. And then finally, our beauty to him. That's one that just blows my mind. He looks at us in our weak state. He goes, you are beautiful. I go, how could it be? He goes, you, all these attributes of you, they're beautiful to me. And I tell you, God stands here even today and he says, you look beautiful to me, my bride. In all of our weakness and all of our inabilities and our insufficiencies, he goes, you're beautiful to me. He's calling out the budding virtues of righteousness in us.
We go, but I'm dark. He goes, and lovely to me. And there's a couple times in the book, and, and I think because this one is probably the hardest one for us to swallow, but there's a couple major portions of the book, I put them right there, where he just goes on and on and on and on about all the attributes of her beauty. I'm like, why do you just, just keep going on? He goes, because this is how I feel. You look good to me. You're beautiful to me. I go, God, I just, I don't deserve that. He goes, no, you have no idea how I feel. Beloved, we can enter into the truths of our eternal identity as his bride, as his partner today. We can begin to enter into those truths today and walk in light of those truths in the way that we live our lives now. When you understand you're desired by God, you're beautiful to God, that even in your maturity, he says, oh, you're lovely to me and I desire you and he's gentle to you and tender and he's, he's seeing you for who you're going to be. He knows your moment. He knows the state you're in, but he goes, oh, I'm absolutely overcome by the yes on the inside. When you get that he's this way towards us, man, it changes our approach. It changes the way we think and feel and go through life. And oh man, then you got to grapple with words like ravished. He uses, he says, you have overcome me. Yeah, I mean, if you have never handled that word ravished and walked around in prayer, or sat there and thought about God is ravished over me. And just let that penetrate your heart. It will undo you. I go, couldn't be. You couldn't be ravished. He goes, I am ravished. No, 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 impossible. He goes, I am ravished. Okay, tell me again, what does this mean? He goes, I am radical in love. I'm fiery in passion. I'm burning in desire for you. And I go, God, you're the object of my affection. He goes, you have no idea. You're the object of my affection. With jealousy and fervency and zeal, he is ravished in love. Beloved, this book is awesome. It takes us to a place in the emotions of God in, in, in such an illustrated way. It brings out truths that are established in the volume of Scripture that you just don't hit in a depth in any other way. Good. All right, I wanted to put that in your hands. And then we'll unpack in the days ahead uh, more detail from the text now. I think we've got enough handles to be able to pound through the text. Um, and it won't be laborious. We'll, we'll, we'll go through it in a way that, that is real accessible. But I think it will enable us to, to be able to get at least a good springboard into a journey into this book. And I really, really want to encourage those of you that haven't ever taken time. Go through the outlines Take time with this book. Allow this to marinate in you over the next you know, month or so as we're doing this. Allow this to begin to work in your heart in a way. It will transform your emotions. Amen. All right, let's stand.